0: Welcome to the Creative Ops Podcast. I'm so grateful that you've joined me again this week as I continue my journey of curiosity of all things Creative Ops. Today, we'll be hearing and learning from Paul Nicholson. Paul has spent 20 plus years at Showtime Networks where he was most recently the SVP of Operations, Production, and Technology. He's got such a rich history of experience that we'll be able to dig into today and benefit from. As always, we're going to start with Paul's definition of creative operations. As you'll hear, he's got a really simply elegant definition. It's all about eliminating friction so that creative operations is paving the way for creatives to focus and excel in their craft. And that philosophy is a great launching point into today's main topic, change management. I know it's one of those terms that gets immediate eye rolls, but in our world of creative ops, it's so critically important. Our jobs are to orchestrate people, process, technology, and change is really what we're doing on a day-to-day basis, on a weekly basis, on a quarterly basis, on an annual basis. And now we're all contending with the massive X factor of AI, which is gonna change everything. And the reality is, is that most Creative Ops teams and leaders, we're just not very good at change management. In fact, human beings just aren't good at change management. Most of us are approaching change very tactically. I'll change this one little process when somebody goes out or we'll make an update to how we've configured this software that we're using. We'll swap in one project management software for another and that'll solve all our problems. It's all very tactical, and we've got to approach it strategically, holistically. Paul, over the course of 20 years, has developed a strategic approach to change management. It's all rooted in really simple principles and approaches, things we've heard about before, but I think hearing about Paul's experiences and what he's learned and how he goes about applying these simple principles and approaches is really gonna benefit Anyone that's listening today that has to deal with change, you're going to be hearing about things like treating change as almost like a product release, the value of interviewing users for features for how they want to work tomorrow versus the way they're working today, using that to create a release schedule. And ultimately over a period of time, what you're really doing is you're shipping a new way of working, going from v one way of working to the v 2 way of working where you're changing a combination of processes, people, technologies, skill sets, and they're all feeding off each other so that you're getting these one plus one equals three outcomes. We're also gonna hear about how Paul approaches things like inputs, who gets input? When and how is that input gathered? How do you prioritize all of that? And how do you connect the inputs from the end users who are actually doing the work or asking for the work with the needs of the business, i.e. the executives who support you need. And we'll also talk about how he actually measures change so that as you're shipping change, the goal, the outcome isn't, look, I changed something. The goal is you change something because somebody went out or somebody said, we need to be able to achieve a different type of outcome for the team or for the business now. This conversation left me, as all these interviews have left me, with a whole bunch of things that have been circling around in the hamster wheels, running in my head. So I'm definitely going to be doing a takeaways episode on this. You can find it if you subscribe to the podcast. And I've got a whole bunch of follow-up questions I want to ask Paul. He's already agreed to come back for another episode. So this episode leads you to asking a whole bunch of your own questions about what is strategic change management and why did paul do something and you want me to peel away the layers of the onion with paul well then drop me a line at nish nish at creativeops.fm meanwhile sit back and absorb what paul has to share about strategic change management in creative ops paul welcome to the creative ops podcast it's great to have you here today like we start off each episode what's your definition of creative operations?
1: Creative operations are often misunderstood or uh, redefined by so many different people in different areas. For me, creative operations is really the intersection of where technology meets that creative and production process. It's the people that manage the projects, but also those that put in the systems and the systems themselves and that can be called creative operations. The job management, project management tools that we use, the little databases that keep things moving, the MAM and DAM systems, all of that sort of translates into the operations of a creative agency or a creative department. A lot of people define it really just strictly as that project management piece. And I think that that's wrong. I think it's really largely where that technology reached that project. So, why do you think it's wrong?
0: I agree with you. I think creative operations and project management have become confused with each other. I think project management is part of creative operations. So why do you think that is wrong?
1: Yeah, I think for the very reason you just said, I think it's part of it, certainly, but too many people rely on the definition of project management as the definition of creative operation. And it really is much more than that. Project management in and of itself, the ardent discipline of project management, whether you're certified or not, of taking a project from inception through delivery and managing, quote unquote, managing that project is a super important part of it all. But there's a lot of steps along the way and, and systems that those people touch and processes to, that have to be developed for them to follow, et cetera, that all sort of encompassing process is really creative operation.
0: So it sort of goes back to that holy trinity that the communities always talked about, or long talked about, people, process, technology, and how do you make all those three work effectively together. Maybe just sort of round out your definition. Give me your elevator pitch on what is the purpose of creative operations, ultimately
1: How does it serve the organization? So largely for me, it's about getting out of the way of the creative process more than anything else. And that's a little confusing, right? Because it's called creative operation, right? At the same time, my philosophy in running a, a creative operations and a creative production department, I had both of those under me at Showtime, was really largely about getting out of the way of the creative process. Let's take all the little administrative things, let's take all the technical things, out of the way of the creative team, so they can just be great idea people and come up with great ideas and concepts for campaigns, for marketing tactics, whatever it might be. And we'll handle all the other stuff, right? And so then all that other stuff is divided into two pieces. One is creative production, which is the actual doing or the making of things, right? The retouching, the editing, the hiring the vendor to do the printing, those sorts of things that are production. But it's all the other stuff on creative operations the technical systems used to make the workflows work. It's the process design, the corporate team structured design, and the project management of the individual product that go through a creative I,
0: I love that word you use or that statement, getting rid of friction and getting out of the way of creative. I think very often creative ops teams focus on how do we do more and how do we go quicker, which is important. And those things need to be measured and tracked. But I think what you said really hit the nail on the head, especially in today's world of you do have to produce more content. You do have to get it out there quicker, but allowing creative teams, the time and space to come up with those concepts and ideas and the ability to experiment and iterate on those so that they can put creative out there, that breaks through that content noise that we're all inundated with these days. I love that idea of getting rid of the friction because I imagine that then goes back into what do we need to automate or how do we streamline processes or how do we need to maybe introduce some new skills. This is probably a good segue into what I wanted to talk to you about today. You spent decades at Showtime and True that, you oversaw a lot of change. And change management is one of those terms that people hate to hear, but it's a necessary evil, right? Because as you're talking about in terms of your definition of creative operations, you're always on the lookout for how do we need to change processes? How do we need to change technologies? How do we need to change skill sets? Or how do we need to maybe redesign the team so that we can produce the outcomes, part of which is getting rid of the friction? getting out of the way of creative. So I want to talk about change management today. So let's start off with at a hundred thousand foot level, what is your definition of change management? And what is sort of your general philosophy and the way you approach change?
1: Sure, sure. Yeah. So so many years of showtime since a couple of decades. So over the over the course of those decades, there's been a number of kind of quote unquote reinventions of the creative agency. At Showtime, that I was obviously a big part of implementing that change, and so change management for me is is really a constant. I use the phrase all the time with my team, and so much so that I would probably get some eye rolls if anyone's listening from my team. But you know, how are we innovating? I was constantly saying, how are we innovating? How are we making change? How are we moving the needle? How are we moving forward? Right? Like we're never satisfied just getting the projects done but always wanted to have something in that R&D lab, which we didn't really actually have, but an R, always thinking about what's next, what's gonna be the next challenge that we have to make change for, or be prepared for, or uh, implement. Is there a new software tool? Is there a new hardware, piece of equipment, some new infrastructure we could put in, or some new business process or team structure? It could be anything, but trying to always be one step ahead of what we're doing currently today, right? So change management for me is life. You're always thinking about what's next or what's coming next in, in my mind. So you, so that you're never surprised really, right? You never want to be presented with something like a generative AI and not be prepared for it. Or even something like going way back, the decommissioning of Quark Express and the transition that everybody is in design, in the prep world, uh, we were way ahead of that. We, we saw that coming. We were ready. We were we were able to flip that switch very quickly. Same thing when we switched our editing tools on the video. Side. So we were always R&Ding. I think there's a lot of reasons that you make change, right? And you never want to overchange because that can be exhausting also. So in terms of what you actually implement versus what you sort of develop in change, those are two different things. We might be talking about change, but never actually implement. Because we we discovered that it was, just wasn't worth it, or it wasn't going to give us the return on that investment of time or money or whatever it might be. And so we're, we were constantly working on innovation projects, but only 10% of them would actually see the light of day. and We would actually implement that change for fear of exhaustion of change, because <laughs> too much change. Change is scary, to your point, or to your earlier point. Change is scary for people. It's a lot to take on. In addition to everyone's normal workload, now you're also having meetings to implement changes. And so you want to be very careful about which ones you're actually implementing.
0: So let's dig into a
1: few things that you mentioned. First
0: of all, you used the word innovation a couple of times, and just to make sure that I and the audience are on the same page with you. When you're talking about using change to innovate, are you talking about something that is in the realm of pushing the boundaries? Or or could that be something as simple as making some tweaks to a process or updating the configuration of an existing software tool? Or is it, when you say innovating with change, is it really tearing everything out and starting off the blank sheet of paper?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think sort of change is one level and innovation is another in my mind. Um, I'm not sure that's a definition correct, but that's the way I think of it, right? So if we're making a change to a process, We're not really innovating per se, unless it's really significant change to that process or eliminating a complete process or implementing a completely new process, which is going to innovate the department in some way, or will bring innovation to the department because now we're able to do 30% more work, or we're able to do some new capability like 3D modeling that we never had, something like that. Those are more, in my mind, the innovations. And the changes are more of the smaller tweaks and changes that you make through a a process or something like that.
0: Got it. So what I'm hearing there is maybe we're using change and innovation interchangeably, but there's almost like you're describing two paths. Path one is incremental change to what we're currently doing and the way we're currently working. So you're going to get some incremental improvements out of it that over time may compound into some pretty big returns like compound savings. And then there's this other type of change that is really more innovation where the change you're implementing is actually unlocking new capabilities that the organization has at its disposal now. And that may get reflected into the types of content you're producing or a magnitude order of difference in scale or speed or other ways in which you can operate. So now you mentioned like always staying ahead and asking your team, so what's next, what's next, what's next? What's next? I know if you were to ask me that question, I I might be a a little bit of a deer caught in headlights, and I've known you for quite a few years, so I don't think you're the sort that would walk into a room, kick the door open and go, guys, what's next? I need to know what's next. (laughs) Talk us a little bit through, how do you facilitate that conversation? Even down to, is that a weekly question you'd be asking, monthly, quarterly? Do you make time and space for this and go, what's working? What's not working? What are we seeing others doing is it, what are we hearing from our internal clients that's frustrating them? What are we maybe seeing other organizations do that's really cool? Because what I heard is you almost have this change backlog. Okay, here's a whole bunch of things we could do, but how do you start
1: to build that backlog? Yeah, I think it's it's a great question. It, it It's constant. I wouldn't say it's like a quarterly thing that I bring up and say, okay, what are we changing this quarter or anything like, you know, in that sense. It's, it, it's more, you know, sometimes you hear... Consistent threads in your catch-up meetings with your direct reports, or in your staff meetings where you're reviewing projects, or when you're meeting with the creative leaders or the marketing strategy leaders, you're hearing about your difficulties um, or challenges they have in their job. And I'm always thinking about like, how can I now be helpful in that? In the, in that right? Your challenge, creative leader, is that you don't have enough resources. You're having to manage too many files on the server you can't find stuff in the damn system, right? You're hearing those types of things. And if you hear them consistently enough, then you want to make a quote unquote change to that process or something like that. But while we're talking about those changes that we're going to make to alleviate those pressures on those other departments, I'll then ask the question like, okay, we'll fix that for now. That'll be a change we make. But what's next? How are we innovating? Can we automate that in some way? Are we thinking about scripting that? Are we thinking about changing the damn tool altogether because it's not servicing the needs of the creative department, right? So you're, you sort of start small with how can we fix this, make it change, and then you think bigger and broader with the big picture of what are we forecasting out for the year or for the next two years in terms of a big damn project or something like that that's going to revolutionize the way we even handle that. Altogether.
0: I like that. What you said about listening, I think very often just those very human things we overlook. And it sounds like you and your team were very active listeners. And what you're listening for was that friction, as you mentioned before, and then going, okay, how do we get rid of this? But then you're also putting it in the context of what are the bigger changes or innovations that we might want to tie this to over the next one to two years? You've mentioned this to me before, and I found your approach to change fascinating because, as you know, part of my background is having led software companies. I can't code to save my life, but I love the process of developing software, and it's very iterative. And I've long said about process, more organizations, and especially creative ops teams, should treat their processes like a product. So you're thinking about, this is version one of it, And I got to ship the next version at some point. And maybe there's little dot changes in between, which sort of sounds like your incremental changes to get rid of the friction. But every now and then you do a big integer release, like going from version two to version three. And what started that discussion was, how do you go to your executive team and ask for support for big changes that you want to make? And a lot of what you're saying sounded like a software development process. So can you walk us through that? Because here's where I think a lot of teams get totally hung up. Talk us through your approach.
1: Yeah, so I, I think first of all, just like everybody, we're, we're we and I am guilty quite often of making too much change, right? And like one project goes off the rails because some little thing happened, and the next thing you know, you're changing and rearchitecting your entire process. Like headcount is in question. You really just overblow it, and so. As my old boss used to say, let's not use an atom bomb to kill a mosquito, right? Let's not change the world because one project went off the rails. Let's pay attention to that. Let's note that. Let's keep that. Let's have a post-mortem meeting about why it happened and all of that. But unless it's happened very consistently, it's not worth changing at the moment. You know, That's first, right? Managing your own desire for change and all that and making sure you're not exhausting people with too much change. In terms of how you implement change, big change, when we talk about innovation or even just large amounts of change, is to what you mentioned, it's critical to have executive support. So senior leaders in your back pocket and backing you up in your attempts to make change and enforce change is key to the whole process. I can't stress that enough. Bringing executive leadership into it as early as possible, the better, so that they can see your overall aspirations and what you're trying to achieve, and then ultimately what it's going to give them back, right? Is it going to reduce head count? Are people going to get to go home earlier so there's less overtime? Is it going to make us have the ability to produce more content? Can we get out to market faster? What is the end result of what you're proposing? The key to that is not to sort of nickel and dime them, right? Too often, again, we go for these little quick sixes, these little band aids. And you go if you go to senior level management with every little thing that you either want to fix or every little thing you want to buy software or, or hardware piece of equipment or something like that that's going to help you in your change you're going to exhaust them you're going to wear out the, the 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 handle on their door and uh, go to the well too often so in my opinion the best way to handle that is really to package it up to think through the change you want to make that's going to make the most impact. And package it together where there might be multiple projects. There might be multiple things you want to change. More than likely, there is. And then go to them with that full, complete picture. Here's what I'm proposing. Here's how much it's going to cost in time and money. Here's what the end result is. Here's the return on our test, right? And now get them to buy off on that. And now you've got them to support you in, in, in your efforts to, to create the change and then to enforce the change there people, not that you're trying to shove it down their throat or anything like that. It's not a power play. I just mean that at the highest level, the organization is supporting of this project that you're now putting forward. And that comes with a lot of uh, weight, gravitas that in, in your meetings and when you're reading discussions
0: and So I think that's really important what you're saying in terms of selling it up and getting their support. You're selling the projected outcomes, whether they're at the VP level or C-suite level. They're not going to want to get into, and quite frankly, not going to care about the nitty gritty of what individual processes are going to change or anything like that. They're going to want to know, like, how does this serve the business? I think that's something that all creative ops people need to get better at is your job is to serve the business. It's
1: not just about delivering more stuff and doing it quicker. So so a lot of times when you're identifying the need for change, You've got problems, right? You've got frustration in the ranks. You've got bad work going out the door, unhappy people. You've got duplication of efforts. You've got all these things that that senior level executive cares about. And he he wants those things to go away. He wants his people to be happy and productive, right? He wants the work to be good. He wants to be on time and on budget. So ultimately, he's achieving his goals in this process, right? And so, so they'll listen to you if you can show them how it serves the business
0: that sort of goes back to that earlier point you brought up, which I love is we're not making change for the sake of change. And I think very often it's easy to do that because somebody might be bored or go, I haven't made a change for a while. I feel like I should make a change because if I don't, then what am I going to say at my quarterly review with my boss? But I do think that's a really key point is, and this goes back to you got to listen and then you've got to know when to make change. So I want to take a bit of segue and sort of dive into that. And then I want to come back into the second part of big change management, which is you've talked about selling it up. I want to talk about selling it down and rolling it out to the team. But what are the things that you're asking yourself or looking for to know? There's this point of friction. It's maybe even come up two, three times. Is it just the number of times it's come up where you go, we need to make a change, whether it's a small one or a big one? Or are you tying it back to KPIs? Talk us through that and any sort of specific examples you may have to share.
1: It's not necessarily the number of times, although sometimes it is, right? It's one of those, it's a little hard to, to, to pinpoint that because you might hear something for the first time and it's so significant that you realize it's worthy of implementing some kind of change. Again, always looking for, the, the, for that friction, but more, more often than not, it's the consistency that you hear something we, we At Showtime, we have a lot of co-marketing that we do with affiliate the companies, right? The, the various cable companies and streaming companies of the world that we partner with in our in our work. And we have just hundreds and hundreds of spots that go out, commercials, video commercials, when I say spots, that go out each month and they're all customized to be sort of co-branded with, with Showtime. And it was so presented with uh, this constant Friction of creating all of these versions in such a manual way, and and hearing from people about how much time they're spending, what the hiccups are, and the project management process of that, the review and approval process of that, etc. The, the sort of consistent message that was coming from those areas. So, you know, we sort of approached it with how do we apply some technology to this to this job? This was like something that seemed really ripe for automation and using computers to help do the work, quite honestly, as opposed to a human being sitting there all night, overnight, over a weekend, creating all these versions. And so we we saw that consistent friction. We presented back the creative team a way to automate that process. There was some apprehension, of course, at first because they lose a little bit of control. And so we had to make sure that they were comfortable with that they would have complete creative control over this. And we had to deal on the partner side, on the actual affiliate side, we had to deal with them losing a bit of control because they had the desire to have any little tiny customization made. And we wanted to put some structure and rigor around that so that we could have a sort of set of templates and a set of automations that could produce consistent results, but maybe not be able to give them every little whip, right? So we implemented Adobe MoGerts and with data-driven uh, customization and automation. And we essentially improved the bandwidth of that by 35% in terms of the number of spots going out the door uh, at a faster pace. Even. So you see this sort of consistent thread, see this pain point, you approach it with what, what's the right thing? Is it a process issue? Is it a people issue? Do we need more headcount? What's the fix? And for us, it was in this particular instance, it was technology. It's not always technology. Sometimes it is, but it's not always. Sometimes it's a people thing, right? And sometimes it's a process thing. Um, but that, that's the kind of uh, that's one example of of the way that we hear these consistent threads and addressed. I
0: love that approach also of involving the creative team in the process of making that change and implementing that technology. And I think very often a couple of people got in a room and they decided this tech tool is gonna solve our problems or this revamp process is gonna change our problems and They didn't involve people. And it's such a cliched thing to say is the people who are going to end up being affected by the change need to be involved in designing that change and signing off on it. Otherwise, they're just going to rebel. That's why I think most people don't like changes because it often happens to them as opposed to with them. So true. Yeah. Yeah. And you clearly take a with them approach, and I think especially in this age of how AI is, we're just starting to see how it's affecting or could be adapting creative workflows. That transparent approach is going to be paramount. And if people don't do that, then they're going to have well, they're going to have rebellions on their hands, is what they're going to have.
1: So, so- the uh, the the importance of bringing people into the into the process is consistent throughout. Probably the rest of whatever we'll we'll talk about here, because I do think that that is so critical, and it's absolutely the approach that I've always tried to take. In some cases, you know, you, you may not afford be afforded the luxury of time, or for some other reason, you've got to just kind of do something quickly, or whatever it might be. Um, but more often than not, inviting people into the process is going to pay huge dividends. In this example, by the way, on these affiliate spots that we were making, the key person became the creative person who actually wound up getting into the technology of it all and figured out how to do the scripting and became the most important person in implementing this change. So bringing them into that conversation and showing them what we were trying to achieve and why we were trying to achieve it got their wheels spinning. And the creative team really was the critical player in this whole solution. This all
0: anchors back to what is creative operations, which is eliminating friction from the creative process getting out of the way of creative and letting them do what they're awesome at doing. Let's go back to change management. You sold some sort of package up to the executive teams over the course of the next, let's call it a year. Here's what we're going to release and here's how it's going to better serve the business. Before you've taken that to the executive team, have you worked with the creative team, the project managers, everybody else to actually design what that big integer release is going to look like or is this something that you and a small group of people just sort of come up i'm asking a bit of a leading question but i'd love to hear you expand
1: on it yeah, yeah absolutely as i said earlier many decades of showtime so lots of versions of the story perhaps as as you sort of learn the right way to handle things and what as your career progresses um, but i can tell you this is the most significant change we really ever implemented was only very recently in 2020, 2021, our time period where we were all going through COVID and we had significant changes to the business and we had significant changes to senior leadership. And so we had all of these new challenges kind of put in front of us for the agency. And we really had to um, address some big problems that this we weren't built for, this new, this new way of working. We weren't built for a distributed team. Uh, we weren't built for this this new 360 uh 360 degree approach that our new leader had uh, as a vision for the department and so we set out for a, on, a, on a project that I, I like to call the production audit if you will and really the sort of building blocks of doing this were to put a team together to address these five or six core issues that we identified as a result of the new sort of remit that, that we had in front of us we, had a project manager assigned to this project, that's a key, right? So whenever you're doing something like this, for whatever reason, people don't think of it like it's a project. They think of their creative projects as something worthy of getting a project manager for, but they don't think of these big sort of change management things as projects where they need a project manager. So highly encourage you to have a project manager and build this thing like a project, right? Have a timeline and schedule, right? Have a team assigned to it. And all of the key components that you might apply to any given creative project very much needs to work the same. In fact, we even started with what's called a project charter, right? So a certified project manager, that's a term very familiar to them. So the casual project manager might not be, but a project charter to really help define what the project is, so to make sure you're not making any assumptions to set a clear understanding of what the current state is of the situation that you're trying to address and to set out uh, with uh, a charter to make sure that you're going to attack this in the way well. And so we came out with five or six kind of core things that we wanted to address. We went into it saying we're going to interview as many people across the entire organization that interact with us, any, anybody that had any interaction with marketing at all, including marketing itself, by the way, um, we're going to interview them. We did more than 120 interviews during this process of what I wow. call the production audit. We sat down. All of it was documented uh, from each team. We had, a, I think we had 28 questions that we wanted to ask as, as sure root questions. Of course, those turned into conversations, and many more questions were actually asked during this process. But we we took all the information, we sort of cold it down, put it into categories, organized it somewhat anonymously so that people didn't feel like they were being. Uh, exposed in anything. They speak freely. And then we went back to them and said, so we interviewed you, we asked all these questions, you gave us all of this great feedback and answers. Did we get it right? Here's the way we perceive what you're saying. Because We wanted to make it or we wanted to combine it with other feedback we were getting. Again, because we did this across the entire organization. And so we wanted to make sure though that we were hitting the right scene. So we went back to those very same people we interviewed and asked them, do we have this right? Uh, is this what how you would classify the feedback that you gave her? And so now you come out of it armed with all of this incredible data across the entire world and you get hundreds of people literally uh, that are way in on it. And now when you take you you you've done the work to cull it down, put it into categories and put it into a deck of sorts of presentation for the executive team, and then take the executive team through it, now you're armed with real-world knowledge, right? It's not just your opinion. It's not just, I think this is a problem. It's Here it is. It's 120 people. They're all saying, these are the big problems, And so much easier to get buy-in presented with that kind of data. So a couple of things I want
0: to ask about that, because that is a very fascinating example of how you sort of start... One of these big change management projects is sounds like part of it was driven by new executive leadership and just new realities of a COVID world and changes in your industry as well led to new priorities and that highlighted the five or six things you mentioned that you know probably needed to change in terms of how the creative ops operated so some of that's driven by top down like here's what the business needs and every part of the organization, including creative operations and production needs to serve what the business needs. And then two was doing these 120 interviews, which is amazing. And then also going back and parroting back to them, here's what we heard, right? It it sounds like a really good couples therapy session. Here's what you said. I went away and thought about it. And did I hear you correctly? How do you then sort of Because you can't say yes to everything. You've got these priorities being driven from the top down based on where the business is going and how it needs to operate in this new world. And you've got input from 120 people. It's sort of like my mom used to say, my brother, sister, and I, we'd all want to eat something different at dinner. And she was just like, well, there's one dinner. That's (laughs) it, right? There's not three dinners. (laughs) So how do you go through that prioritization to determine what you're going to take back to the exact... Put into that plan... And then before you even go back to the executive team, is that something you're sharing back with the broader team and going, guys, here's what I think we need to do in sort of this big transformation that we're doing over the course of the next year and why, and be able to justify why some things are in and why some things were left out.
1: Those are great points. Funny, that's funny about dinner. I had a similar experience. I think it was key for us to categorize the feedback right? Uh, After we got it, after we called it down, after we confirmed it with those that that gave it to us, we put it into buckets. We had four buckets. Essentially, we had process things that we needed to fix. We had structure, team structure things we needed to fix. We had tech. Of course, there's always tech things that needed to get fixed. Like, I can't find stuff in your digital asset management system, those sorts of noodles. And then education, just things that actually were already in place, but maybe others didn't know about it. Like, how do I find out where the status of a project is? Or how do I go into the system to find out what the budget is for my project? Or if it's growing over budget, those types of such things that were already in place, but weren't communicated well enough. Or maybe they didn't understand what the right process was for initiating a job. Those sorts of things that we could just educate people. Maybe it's a meeting. Maybe it's a memo. Uh, maybe it's even just a Slack message, but there's things people needed to know, All right? So we took those four buckets of things. And then we apply them to the six big problems that we had in terms of prioritization to get to your point. right? We have all this feedback now. We have all these things that need to get done, but we can't do them all. Um, and so first step is to figure out what the senior executive's priorities are and align them together. Right? So we're hearing these are the problems, but the senior guy says these are the most important things to him. So then what we did was we went through and prioritized the list. We actually created a database I did over a weekend, like an Airtable database where I put all of these projects, all of the feedback turned into little projects and put them into a database so that we could sort and filter and prioritize, et cetera, and make assignments and all that. Again, treating it like a project, like a real project, so everyone could collaborate and add notes and things like that on there. But uh, we identified essentially 65 projects that came out of this process of things we needed to fix. Some of those were really small, low-hanging fruit things. We could fix easily with a meeting or by creating a memo and distributing it. But other things were really big systems to integrate or implement, to purchase, team structure, things that had to go through HR processes and whatnot, maybe hiring, maybe laying people off, maybe changing some of their jobs. These kinds of things that were definitely going to be things that took a lot of time and weren't really quick hitters. But other things, again, were quick hitters. Oh, if you could just put that file here on the server, then we could get it easily instead of having to hunt for it. So there were a little thing. But the key to get back to answer your question is really aligning the feedback with what the executive's goals are. What is What are his main goals or her main goals for the team? And then making sure that you're doing the things that are going to make the biggest impact on those goals. It's just
0: brilliant in its simplicity. It's marrying the top down with the bottom up because it's the people who are actually doing the work who are going to have a pretty good idea as to what's actually getting in the way of achieving these things. And yeah, they're going to also inject their personal pet peeves and preferences and things like that. But it gives you a lot of rich data that then allows you to put together a plan that is probably going to be more prone to getting a lot of of buy-in. And then let's talk a little bit about Now you've got the plan and the investment and the time that the executive team has bought into. How do you start to roll these changes out? So talk us through what does that rollout process look like? Are you making all these changes like overnight and maybe going back to the software development way of doing things? Is it sort of a bunch of mini
1: releases along the way? (laughs) You You hit the nail on the head. It's it's absolutely, it's funny, it's a funny analogy. Actually, is very similar to that process. And so what we did was, and by the way, I didn't do this all myself, right? Uh, as I said in the beginning, you, you need to surround yourself with great people and not too many people, we can't have too many chefs in our kitchen, so to speak, but you've got to have a good project manager and then you've got to have some other key people that are not necessarily leaders across the organization, but influencers, if you will, in, within the organization that can represent, right? because as you start to lose energy as the person leading the charge, they pick you up, right? And pick up the ball and run with it. And as they get distracted with their regular job, their day-to-day job and their regular work, you can be the leader that brings them back and refocuses them. That's key because again, these some of these projects could take, to your point, a year to implement. You're going to have distractions. You're going to have shifting of priorities and whatnot, maybe even changes to what set out to do along the way. And so It's important that you sort of all keep each other on track, right? Staying on track is key. So once you have the plan, the next phase of this is really to go again back to those people who gave you feedback and show them what the executive has signed them up on and say, okay, you gave us this feedback. We brought it back to you and confirmed it, right? And then we went and talked to the senior readers and aligned it with their goals and made sure that we're doing the most impactful things to, to reach the department and company goals. And so now I want to show you what we decided because you're the one that gave me the feedback. You're the one that has the friction. You're the one that's providing some of the suggestions for what we should do. Here's what we've decided to do. And here's what we've decided not to do so that you feel heard in this process. I don't want you to think we just ignored those things they didn't never go back to them, right? Key is to go back to them and explain to them why you decided to do the things that you've decided to do so that it might be still frustrating but you know, to your earlier point, you can't do them all. But we've identified these as the most impactful. Okay, and so then in our in our particular project, uh, we had no resistance from that. Pretty much, we had a very ambitious uh, number of projects. As I said, fifty five things that we decided to do, and that was the far, the far and away majority of the things that we really were asked to do. And so there wasn't a whole lot of resistance or frustration on the part of the interviewees. And so now they're, they felt a part of this process. They felt heard. They think we're addressing it the right way. So that again, when we do address it, we, they have no recourse to say, um, oh, you know I told you to do it this way, or I didn't ask for that or any of that, right? They're going to this process and they're holding hands with you as you go down the path.
0: Yeah. And, um, so then it's a series of mini milestones along the way. And, you know, Every plan makes sense as soon as you finish writing the plan. And then once it makes contact with reality, parts of the plan start to not look so right. What are the things that you're listening for, looking for, measuring along the way to know if you're on the right track and if you need to make changes? You've got this plan broken down into milestones and it's going to roll out over the course of the next 12 months. Are there transformation retros that you're doing every month, every quarter? Talk us through that a bit.
1: Yeah, I think anywhere that you can, analyzing data is key in this, right? So that you can go back and say, we improved by X or improved by or decreased by Y or reduced spending or speed to market was increased or, or so and so, so like that. It's not all the touchy-feely stuff. It's not all just making people less frustrated, but there's real reason to do this stuff for the business, right? To answer those company goals and the environment goals. So you need to be able to track that as best you can. There's always going to be things that are very, very difficult to track and to have any kind of metrics around. But there's a lot of things that you do. One of the things we had at Showtime for a million years, actually, for the better part of 20 years, was a really good job management system that we built ourselves. We called it Red Base at Showtime. And that was a database tool that we tracked every single project, and for the better part of two decades, every project, every detail about who was assigned, the schedule for that, the delivery specs, on and on, every project detail. And really, we were early in that game. Right? There's a ton of these tools available now out there. Whether it's you know the Asana's and Airtables of the world, we were way ahead of the curve on that. Um, and that really paid a lot of dividends for us, not only in general, but in this process, so that we could go back and look at historical data. How long did it take us typically to do a billboard? Or how many billboards did we create in a particular year? Or how many did we create against a specific campaign? And how long did they take? How many people were assigned? How many hours did it take those people to do that job? Et cetera, right? So you have all of this good data including financial data. What was the budget for it? Did we go over budget? Or were we under budget? Do we have a contract in place with that vendor? So on and on, we had all of great data to mine so that when we implemented a change at any point along the way, whether it's this particular change management process or any of the earlier ones, we were very easily able to go into that system and go back and see, we've, oh, we've improved the speed to which we make this. By X. In our review and approval tool, we can see that uh, now projects are taking two or three rounds and their are approved, whereas in the past it was five or six. And we could estimate the amount of time that saved individuals. Certain roles at Showtime were time tracked as well. So we could look back and say, how many hours did we spend against this? And certainly we had a lot of tight budgeting, financial information about the spending. And so we can see that. How much did we reduce spending by? So at anywhere you can, you want to be able to track the metrics that you have. In other cases, you may not have metrics, right? There's one example of uh, one of the big projects actually that came out of this process was to change the entire project management hierarchy of the agency. Um, What we came to realize was that if you, depending on what kind of project you wanted to initiate, if you were one of our quote unquote clients, these partners that we had throughout the Showtime company, now, if you wanted to initiate a project, there was any number of different processes that you had to follow based on the type of project it was. If it was a video, it followed this path. If it was a print billboard, it followed this path. If it was a piece of key art, it was a different path. So on and so. As a digital banner, it was a different path. So on and so forth. And So it was very important to me to align the project management hierarchy so that there was a very clear line to a project initiation to the client, because that was a huge pain point that we heard very consistent across. that There was a lot of new people and they always had to get trained on all of these different processes. They don't know who to call when they have a problem with one of these projects or to initiate a project, et cetera. And so very carefully, we went through the org and we aligned the organization to be a certain way so that they were mirror images of each other. So there was really one process that you had to learn and everybody had a, a point person that they could contact. So, Without getting into the weeds of it, I was just really streamlining and simplifying the process for anybody that wanted to initiate a project. Something like that is difficult to analyze in terms of improvement more than it is from people's opinions. It certainly was easier for them. There There was no sort of time metric or anything like that, but they were feeling better served. People were feeling like information was flowing much better. They were much more in the know about the project and the specifics of that project, et cetera. So there was a lot less frustration, which turned into a lot less meetings about that frustration, which clearly saves tons of tons and tons of time. There are some things I think you can really get into the weeds of analyzing data on, and other things you might not have good data on, and you have to sort of go with your gut.
0: Again, I have so much to say about this. I'll try and limit myself because I know we're coming up on time and I've got two final questions for you. But on the metrics part. I think that is so incredibly valuable and needed to use as part of any change management process, whether it's big or small in scope, because I think too often people who are leading change management think the change is the job and it's no. Ultimately, it's about serving business outcomes. I love the idea of hard metrics and soft metrics or quantitative and qualitative. And I think We probably need to give more attention to those qualitative ones, like how do people feel about the process? And do they feel it's better now than it used to be? Because ultimately, all work is a human endeavor. I love data. I love using data, and I love hard data to help inform decisions. But I think we need to pay more attention to those softer metrics as well, because ultimately, even though things might be going faster, more cost-effective, producing better marketing results, whatever it may be, if people aren't enthused about the changes that have been made, that's going to show up in different and probably more problematic ways. So I think going back and maybe even at the start, setting a baseline for on a scale of one to 10, how much do you dread our processes today, and then asking again quarterly through that whole change life cycle or something like that. And you even mentioned a couple of things. Do you feel like you're having to go to meetings that are unproductive? Even asking that before and after it's, it's again, it's not hard data, but I think it'll provide a lot of good insight. I've often thought at the end of every meeting, people should have to fill out just quick something they get by text. Was that meeting useful? But your overall approach of making sure to use data to know that the change is on track helps to like go back to the executive team and go, hey guys, thanks for signing off on this and here's what you expected and here's how we're tracking against that. And then same going back to the rest of the team and going, hey, thank you everyone for helping us design these changes and prioritize them and here's the results that we're seeing. So we're on track or maybe we need to make some changes and we'll make those changes with
1: full transparency again. Yeah, it's critical to not cause more meetings, right? That's the that's the the issue everyone has, especially as we're in a distributed workforce now. We're all on Zoom. The There's just so many kind of appointment meetings on your calendar that you wind up just literally just jumping from Zoom to Zoom to Zoom all day, and then at eight o'clock at night you get to, you know you get to do your actual work. That's a real struggle, and I think having a clear agenda for a meeting is critical. Too many meetings are just get-togethers, right? I've been listening to a lot of Jeff Bezos clips, for whatever reason, been showing up on my seat, and they have some really interesting meeting rules and regulations that Amazon yeah. over the years where, you know, if this meeting's not helpful to you, you don't have to go, and those sorts of things. So you really have to resist the urge of meetings. And one of the things, for example, when you're making a lot of change, or any change for that matter, even if it's and you're changing a process or something. And, and now instead of people calling Joe to do this thing, they have to call Nish to do this thing. Rather than having a meeting about that, which too often happens right, for small things and small teams, you know, set up a Slack channel. We had a Slack channel at showtime, which was like invaluable. That was just like, whose job is this? That was the name of the channel. Whose job is this? And so you could write in there, I'm doing an affiliate promo and I needs to get routed to the client. Whose job is this? Right, And so anybody crowdsourcing now could weigh in and say, oh, that's the account executive supposed to do that, or you're supposed to do that, or, oh, that's Joe. Joe does that. And so you can quick fix and have everybody see the answers so that there's a mass education about it rather than just tell one person that answer that she's looking for. Now everybody can see it and weigh in on it and understand it. And then there's also the, whose job should this be? And so like, I currently do it this way, but I think you should do it that way. So you have a little bit of input. feel like you have a voice.
0: Two things. One is I've long believed that there is a treasure trove of uh, valuable insights in calendar analytics. And what you're making me think of is part of identifying that friction is going in analyzing people's calendars and going, how many meetings do you have tied to which projects? Because that's probably a good indication of, there's friction here because you're spending too much time on this and you're spending too much time in meetings. And is that a tech issue, a people issue, a process issue, all of the above? And even that Slack channel is probably a good window into why don't people know whose job this is, right? Like (laughs) that should be like one of those things that's like, we've got all this tech, we've got all these processes, these things should be obvious. All right. So let's start to wrap up here. I got two final things for you. One is... I could probably ask you another 100 questions, so we'll have to have you back at some point to answer a bunch of follow-up questions. But my question is around AI, and it's been on everybody's mind since November 30th of last year when ChatGPT hit everybody's radar and AI became, quote-unquote, real, even though it's been around for decades, but it became real to everybody, uh, especially with all these generative AI tools. And what I've observed in most organizations is that the vast majority of them seem to be paralyzed by the overwhelming awe of AI is going to change everything, because it is. And some organizations are starting to do some experiments, but most people seem to be stuck with paralysis. And AI, to me, is going to represent the biggest change any one of us has ever gone through in our lifetimes, in all facets of our lives, and certainly professionally. What have you been thinking about as this AI age is unfolding when it comes to change management?
1: Yeah, it really is the million dollar question. It's such early days for AI in terms of what we're doing. I think a lot of people are finding it really useful for sort of creative exploration at the moment, right? There's, there's a lot of great imaging tools that very quickly you can generate concept ideas and whatnot, and different spotty parts to, to use in Photoshop and things like that, just to generate imagery quickly. It's very helpful to creative teams across the world. And now video But it's such an early days. There's a a lot of the leaders of big companies are seeing the potential of AI. I think a lot of the employees, they'll still see it as a threat. They're still thinking about their job and how it affects them on that level more than they're able to see through what the potential might be. It's obviously going to be critical for people to learn how to use this stuff, right? And be good prompters at at the very least in the beginning. And as things evolve, keep up with that. I think somebody said... AI is not going to take your job, but someone who understands AI is going to take your job. So you should understand AI. And, and if you're not, you're you're falling way behind because every day seems like there's just some major announcements on, on that front, especially as it relates to creative production or creative operations or creative, right? So in the art world, there's so much, and there's obviously so much more, but there's so much in our particular type of business. There's some really interesting and exciting things. You're even seeing, you're seeing AI implemented in tools like LinkedIn now and some of the tools that we use every day. They're incredibly valuable actually already, even in their sort of beta modes to help navigate whatever it is that you're looking at. I think it's a little bit like you know a DJ at a club sort of mixing the classic tracks with the futurist beats of AI. We're all in this weird spot right now where we're still doing our job in a very traditional way. But we're also, we have this really cool, this cool guy just walked in and he's got this really amazing shirt on and he's ready to tear the place up and dance his butt off. And he's the new cool kid on the block and that's AI. And we're trying to figure out, do we like him? Do we not like him? Is he weird or is he cool? But nonetheless, get with the program because this is gonna be incredible. It's already incredible. It's already automating things and influencing companies in terms of how they're hiring people in terms of the systems that they're putting in. So it's already having a major influence even in these are games So it's going to be exciting to watch. I think you've already got a lot of the answers when it comes
0: to change with AI based on what you've learned and done and the approach, which is very much rooted in the human element. You tell me if I'm mischaracterizing what you shared with me today, but for you, it's not about the process, the technology, it's about removing the friction from the way of creatives. And that is about putting the human in the middle and prioritizing the human. It makes me think of, I recently did an episode with Michelle Vincent from MoFilm, and they talk about their core philosophy of creator in the middle. And yes, they use AI. I think where we're all getting overwhelmed and maybe confused by AI is just the scale and speed at which it moves, which feels foreign to us. But everything you've talked about, feels rooted in humanity. It's about removing friction so that people can do their best work and apply their talent. AI can do a great job of taking more and more of that work that feels drudgery, that feels like machine work instead of human work, especially for creatives who are storytellers. And that is an innately human quality, at least for now. And even your approach of allowing people to help shape and design change. They've got this great approach of like, hey guys, here's something that we're trying to achieve. Here's maybe a tool that will allow us to do it. And the creative team shaping what that change was going to look like. So I think what we all need to be cognizant of is that this is going to be change, but really what we need to adapt to is the scale of the change and the speed of the change is going to feel like being on a roller coaster. I think that's a lot of what I'm thinking about and how organizations need to adapt to that because it may end up being there's a major transformation initiative, not once every couple of years, but every quarter it's, okay, what are we changing now? And this might go back to an earlier thing you're saying is like, how do you stay ahead of it? And maybe you will be walking into rooms going, okay, guys, what's the change that we should have on tap for Q2 and then Q3 and then Q4?
1: Yeah. AI is not something we can control or contain, even at this, especially at this stage where it's just growing exponentially so fast, but it's really changing organizations and roles and responsibilities and things like that. It's really starting to blur the lines. It's very uncomfortable for people, especially, for example, the creative team, where they were always the sole people responsible for generating ideas in a visual form. And now anyone on the account team or even in the media department or in the finance department can prompt MidJourney to create a concept for a new TV show that's going to be on Showtime and present that back to the creators and be like, well, I think this is a good idea. And now it's like a polished, high res image that no one we used to be able to know how to do or didn't know how to do. So it's very uncomfortable for people, but the urge to sort of contain that I think is the state. It's like over medicating children that house that are that are that have a bit of ADDA. let people be people, right? Let let the technology take us where the technology is going to take us without constraining it.
0: Every company right now should be treating itself as an R&D lab where everybody has a lab coat and they're playing with these tools. The analogy I've been using is a periodic table of elements. Everything we've been able to do up until now has been based on the elements that we knew existed. And AI has new elements got added to the table. So if we're in the lab, we should be mixing things up and just seeing what comes out of it. Folks on the marketing or business side may end up using tools like Midjourney, and they may then end up giving something to the creative team that's an image, a video, something else. And does that become the new creative brief? Instead of like trying to fill out a forum with a thousand fields in it and trying to explain what's in your head, instead just say, here's what I'm thinking. And then let the creative team apply their amazing creative talent to go, hey, Nish, that's really nice we get where you're going, we're going to make this into something awesome that lines up with our brand guidelines and the ethos of the show or brand or whatever it may be. But that doesn't happen unless you let people experiment without shackles. And there's going to be some car crashes along the way, but the sooner you get through the car crashes, the better you're going to be at being a confident driver and being on the road
1: and being able to get to where you want to go hundred percent. You know, the, the real challenge is navigating the fine line between like embracing the innovation, and ensuring the human touch and creativity is a loss, right? Th- that's the key. And I, I think you wrote a, a great article on let the machines do the machine work and let the people do the people work. I think creativity is one of those things that the human touch is going to remain extremely important.
0: I believe it is. We're the ones who've always written the stories about what we want the future to be. That's why you and I are sitting here on our respective computers on different coasts recording this podcast for others to listen to. Paul, this has been a great episode. I'm going to be recording a separate one with a bunch of my takeaways because there's a ton here. And like I said, love to have you back at some point with my 100 follow-up questions on change management, especially as we all go through 2024 and Continue to see what kind of changes that AI brings. Final question for you. You shared so much wisdom and knowledge today, which I truly appreciate. And I know the audience is going to get a lot of value out of. Who would you like to hear from on a future episode of the Creative Ops Podcast?
1: Ooh, good question. So many. I mean, first, I'd like to flip the microphone around and interview you, maybe. That might be a really interesting episode to do. I'll say Andrea Tarasha. Andrea Tarasa. Yes. Do you know Andrea?
0: I do not. Tell me about okay. Andrea.
1: So Andrea is not someone I know. And probably if she hears this, will be like, why is she talking about me? When I read an article in Will Black Book Online, she is the CEO oh, uh, of Dentsu Creator. And so clearly an operations expert. And the article, when I read the article, it felt like it it almost could have been me in the article. We have a lot of very much the same philosophies and thinking about operations, although I definitely learned a bunch as well from her in the article. And I, I just thought it was a really great piece on uh, what seems like a, a great executive.
0: All right. Well, then we will have to reach out to Andrea Torasso and see if she'd be open to coming on the podcast and sharing the benefit of her own experience and
1: wisdom. Yeah, I I mean, she'd, be, she'd be a good, I'm sure she'd be a great guest.
0: All right. Well, Paul, thanks so much for doing this today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much, Nation. It was a pleasure. Such a good conversation. always enjoy talking to you. Always learn five or 10 things every time we speak. Thanks for doing this podcast. It's very important and really important work. So thank you very much.
0: I appreciate that. That's a wrap for today's episode. Remember to please do three things. Number one, head over to creativeops.fm and sign up for that companion newsletter. Number two, whatever your favorite podcast player is, please hit subscribe. Search for Creative Ops, all one word, Creative Ops Podcast. Make sure you don't miss out on the next episode. And remember, number three, this isn't just my journey of curiosity. This is our journey of curiosity about all things Creative Ops. So if you've got a question or maybe a different perspective about what you heard today, or maybe you just want to share something that you're curious about. Drop me a line at Nish at creativebots.fm. Thanks so much. And I look forward to catching you at the CreativeBots water cooler for next week's episode.